This is the Stars and Bacteria podcast. I'm Jas, and you're listening to episode five, a conversation with Sayed. In this episode, we speak to Sayed, who is a co-founder and chief science officer for Cognitivity, which is a platform for early detection of cognitive impairment and dementia. As you will hear in the podcast, this technology can detect subtle changes in cognitive or brain function up to 10 or even 20 years before the person would actually go on to develop dementia. Now, Sayed has an incredibly impressive background. He has a PhD in neuroscience from Cambridge, where he specialized in the brain and cognitive sciences department. He then became a postdoctoral researcher at MIT's computer science and AI department. He's experienced in using various tools such as neuroimaging, computational modeling, and machine learning in studying the mysteries of the human brain. In this episode, we speak about a wide range of topics, such as the problems of academia and the importance of a Silicon Valley Stanford complex, the challenges of detecting neurological problems early on, lifestyle factors affecting cognitive impairment, and raising capital from investors. Here is the conversation with Sayed. Thank you for joining us, Sayed. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. So in the first part of the podcast, which is called Overrated or Underrated, uh, say it essentially what I'm going to do. I'm going to throw a few phrases at you. And if you could say whether you think they are overrated or underrated, and feel free to elaborate as much or as little as you want. Sure, sounds good. So the first one is the level of innovation in the UK health tech system. So that's underrated, I think. There's a lot of room to further innovate within the UK healthcare system. Even though it is, I mean, comparing it to to other healthcare systems, I would say it's in good shape in comparison, but there is a lot of room to improve. And I appreciate the initiation of NHS Digital or NHS X, which is kind of trying to lead the way towards those changes. The usefulness of fMRI studies in uncovering untapped knowledge about areas in neuroscience. Right. To some extent, maybe it's overrated. fMRI, or generally all the human neuroimaging techniques, are non-invasive, meaning that you're essentially looking at the brain from outside without having a handle on it. By analogy, you can think of it as if I give you a computer and I don't let you open the box, and I ask you to tell me how it is working. That's kind of the techniques we've got. We have to understand how the brain works using fMRI or EEG without being able to have a close look at the brain activity. That makes it very challenging, even though there, there has been, uh, I think, great progress so far. And as new techniques become available, such as combining EEG and fMRI and different modalities, I think we can hopefully know more about the brain. The state of academia in helping innovation in general. That I think is also overrated because most of the innovation that happens in academia do not translate into real world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The academic peer review process. <laughs> you, you, that, can, I think you can be honest. It's kind here. of a disaster. Yeah. <laughs> in in its current form, it is mostly a disaster. <laughs> right. We'll we'll touch into that a bit later on. VC funding as a means of capital for startups. 
that's that's one way of raising capital. There are other ways, depending on the stage of funding. I think startups should decide which one is is more appropriate. The statement that neuroscience has made great progress in understanding consciousness. That's uh, extremely overrated. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, as I said, because of the lack of techniques to understand the brain in action and in behavior. That's for, and, and consciousness is by far one of the most complicated phenomena in the brain sciences. So we, we don't really know much about it. Now, in the next part, I wanted to speak about cognitivity. So could you tell us what cognitivity is and what problem is it solving? Sure. So cognitivity is digital healthcare company, if you like. We started back in 2013. The main mission is diagnosing uh, Alzheimer's and dementia when it matters. And the products we have uh, currently, one is integrated cognitive assessment, which provides aid for diagnosis through a digital AI-enabled cognitive assessment platform. The other product we have is called Optimize, and that is to kind of optimize your lifestyle and measure your kind of performance on a weekly or daily basis, along with your lifestyle measures, such as exercise, sleep, and other things, and get insights how your lifestyle has impact on your kind of performance or changes in your kind of performance. So with the first product that you've mentioned, so essentially, who would that be for? Where would they do this assessment? And what does the assessment look like on a practical level? Right. The first product, ICA, that has CE approval. And in the UK, we are currently looking to essentially use that as a triaging tool for secondary care and also as a screening tool in primary care. So for example, if I want to expand on the primary care side of the things, when a patient with memory concerns comes to, or with cognitive concerns generally, comes to a GP, there are not that many objective tools available that can essentially refer patients accurately to secondary care. One of the recent studies showed the brief cognitive tests that are available today, most of them pen and paper, they have about 70% accuracy only. So what we are trying to achieve here by using ICA in the primary care is to refer more accurately in order to kind of reduce unnecessary burden on the memory clinics in the secondary care. And the reason that we think IC can do that is because it is free from the typical biases that the current kind of tests have, such as bias towards education or they are language dependent, most of them. So if people have different, come from different backgrounds or different languages, depending on their familiarity with English, for example, they could underperform similar with education, similar with differences in culture. What we've tried to do is to eliminate those biases and we've shown experimentally that we have been successful to do so. And in secondary care, it can similarly be used for triaging patients. So essentially now that the COVID has hit the memory clinics essentially are closed and there is a, the, the queue is, is further accumulating. The IC can be used to essentially order patients that need more of attention. 
And you mentioned, you know, the different biases at play. For example, there is a cultural bias. Individuals come from perhaps different cultures or speak different language where English may not be their first language. And you spoke very briefly about the, the learning bias. Could you touch on that slightly? Sure. So if I want to give you an example, the current style of care, such as, such as MOCA, if you take the test today, I ask you to take it next week, for example, because you're already exposed to the questions, you most likely, you will get a full score. You've learned uh, how to take the test. You've seen the questions. It is like cheating in an exam. Yep where you already have access to the questions. Mm -hmm. And indeed, if patients go just online and search for some of these tests on Google, they'll see the questions. Right. And the next day they go to the clinic, they are given the same questions. This is called practice effect or a learning bias. And that's kind of a significant bias that prevents uh, using such tests regularly. So you can't really catch the cognitive decline mm -hmm. with those tests. And because they are language dependent and culture education dependent, they have those biases as well. So if you want to use that test in a different context, in a different country, you have to collect normative data again, you have to translate it. And that translation, particularly when it comes to the verbal part of the test, becomes more difficult because it is not just a literal translation of the words. Some words are often used in one language, but rarely used in another. So you can't just translate those. There are challenges and difficulties there, in addition that you have to collect normative data. So it takes quite a lot of time to scale up those tests internationally, if you like. Whereas what we've got in the ICA test, we essentially present participants with a series of natural images that are globally recognized. There is no verbal component. We ask them to categorize those images as to whether they contain animals or not. And then we look at their patterns of responses, their reaction times and other things, and then they're fed into our AI engine, which is an explainable AI, meaning that we can trace back how the AI came to this suggestion. And that gives additional insights to the clinician. Uh, one of the question examples, if you like, as you just said, is there'll be uh, pictures on screen and the user is asked to categorize, you know, which of these are pictures of animals. And then that information, uh, along with the response time, is sent over to AI engine. Have you encountered that, for example, there may be certain individuals who are perhaps not as familiar or not as comfortable with, with using technology or with using that platform? And so perhaps response times or differences in response times could be a result of those? How would you try and control for that? That's a very good question. In terms of familiarity with digital technology, that's kind of a challenge for all the digital, either diagnostic or therapeutics that is coming, coming along in coming years. And I would say most of the people in the category that we are looking at are reasonably familiar with the smartphones. And that's essentially what we want. The test is essentially designed to detect subtle cognitive impairments. So people in the stage of mild cognitive impairment or mild Alzheimer's, and ideally even if we can do it earlier. In that stage, people are, you know, cognitive impairment is so subtle that uh, it is not easily detectable by their, in their behavior in a daily life. There's essentially a difference in terms of 
the patients that you're uh, catering this service for, they'll be in a stage where the cognitive impairment is, is in a very, very early stage. So they're actually quite functional. Um, and the purpose of, you know, of your digital tool is essentially to catch them in the very early ages before this is apparent even to themselves, to the people around them, or even to their physician. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, as you carefully worded this, the, the test is appropriate for people with myocardial impairments uh, or mild Alzheimer's. And when the disease becomes more severe, well, the IC test is, is challenging. It is not designed to kind of detect severe impairment. Essential severe impairments don't need uh, a subtle tool to, you know, to be able to detect those impairments. You can just the clinician or even non-clinicians can detect those severe impairments. You don't need a smart tool to be able to detect that. You know, as you've mentioned, there are usually already certain neurological processes that are undergoing much before any symptoms uh, start to manifest, uh, no matter how uh, mild they might be. So do you have a rough time frame that you aim for uh, with this tool that you're aiming to diagnose uh, either you know, mild cognitive impairment a certain number of years earlier before it would usually be caught in the clinic? Right. So the underlying pathology of the Alzheimer's disease, depending on various studies on average, it appears up to maybe 20 years before the onset of memory symptoms. And currently, the only tools that can detect that kind of underlying pathology very early are biomarkers which are invasive, such as, you know, you can use PET scanning, looking at the accumulation of particular proteins in the brain, such as amyloid beta or tau. But the thing is that you cannot use uh, those invasive tools on a population-wide basis. Right. Because they're expensive and they're invasive. There are not enough of them also to, to be able to roll it out internationally or internationally. Uh, so the alternative to that is to be able to screen people who are at high risk and then maybe shortlist them and send them for further assessments, which are more accurate and then, then they can look at the, the actual underlying pathology of the brain. So what IC does is essentially, when we look at it as a screening tool, it can serve the purpose of finding and highlighting people at risk. In regard to that, what we try to do is, is to detect those subtle impairments, ideally before the onset of memory symptoms. That's what we're trying to do. And that's uh, well, currently what we have evidence for and what we have done in our clinical trials is that we can detect people with my kind of impairment with liquid accuracy. And well, in the future studies, we have to see if we can move earlier than MCI. If I was to be slightly skeptical, the current treatments for dementia or for Alzheimer's, they're not particularly effective. So let's assume even if the digital tool is able to go ahead and detect mild cognitive impairment early on, because we don't necessarily have you know, a solid treatment base, how does that line up? Yeah. So the first step to every uh, treatment is obviously diagnosis. And if we don't have effective diagnostic tools, we won't be able to treat people and we won't be able to effectively design uh, drugs that can treat people. So that's the first step. I understand there is currently therapies for Alzheimer's are very limited and essentially there is no treatment for MCI participants, no pharmaceutical treatment as of now. 
But things have changed in the past few years. There is great hope that disease-modifying therapies for MCI malady will become available soon. Part of making that possible is to have diagnostic tools that can detect the disease earlier because if you start the treatment late when the neurons have damaged, that process of neurodegeneration is irreversible currently. Right, right. So even if you stop the disease, you can't really get the same kind of performance back. Mm -hmm. So I would say these go hand in hand. So you have to have a diagnosis, have diagnostic pathway available to be able to develop treatments, effective treatments. And in addition to the pharmaceutical interventions or disease-modifying therapies, another aspect that has been, I would say, largely neglected or maybe underweighted, I would say, is the impact that non-pharmaceutical interventions can have, such as choices in lifestyle. If you look at the risk factors for Alzheimer's, there are many lifestyle choices that you can make to reduce risks of developing dementia in the future, or if you have MCI, to reduce the risks of converting to AD, or at least delay the onset of AD. There are a lot that can be done, such as taking care of your vascular health, having exercise, having a you know proper healthy diet, and having a healthy sleep pattern. Mm-hmm. And th- those things could be very effective. Yeah, it's interesting you've mentioned the, the lifestyle factors, you know, which are at play here. Just before touching on those a bit further, I completely agree with what you said about, you know, the importance of actually having a diagnosis and even more so the importance of having an early diagnosis. I suppose in certain ways, you know, the digital tool that you've developed is further ahead and is actually waiting for the treatment options to catch up with it. In the data that you have picked up so far with the tool, Are there any interesting insights that you've managed to unpick which ties lifestyle factors with the risk of developing mild cognitive impairment? And does that tend to be similar across the board or are there differences? Right. So I would say, uh, well, the wellness app that we have for linking cognitive performance with lifestyle. So that one is for older individuals or young individuals who are interested to have a self-understanding of their kind of performance. We do not track them, at least not now, we do not track them to see if they have converted to Alzheimer's. Right. That's because it is a wellness app. Yep, yep. Um, right. So what we can look at is how, well, I can share insights about the impact of their lifestyle choices on the kind of performance. And one thing I can share here is that it is very personalized. So for some individuals, for example, we see their sleep patterns is the measure factor that explains changes in their kind of performance. For some others, we see actual exercise has more significant impact, if you like. And this varies individual by individual. And some actually have very interesting profiles which I refer to them to them as cognitively stable, meaning that although they might have significant changes sometimes in their lifestyle, but their cognitive performance remains reasonably similar. So they've got high cognitive stability and cognitive reserve. And these typically are among young health individuals. So regardless of whether they have slept properly, unnecessarily eating the right things or engaging in exercise, their cognitive performance is relatively stable throughout. Yeah, we have some individuals uh, among the young, healthy ones that have that profile, yes. And it would be really interesting to see actually 
uh, perhaps over a longer time horizon, whether this cognitive stability remains intact with aging or, you know, whether it actually starts Absolutely. to break down. Yeah. That's quite yeah, fascinating. So that's exactly the question <laughs> we are interested in. Yeah. But we have to give it, give it a, I don't know, maybe 10 years to see that. So the, this data I talked about is a longitudinal data over about three to six months. Moving on, I just wanted to speak about your journey as a, as a founder. Now, you're in academia, you're a scientist, you know, you've been in various different backgrounds of whether it's computer science, AI, and then neuroscience. And then you made that switch to entrepreneurship. Was this always a plan or how did this happen? So back in, I don't know, maybe seven, seven years ago when I was still a PhD student in the lab, well, I always enjoyed doing research and that was within my comfort zone. But there was something inside me that, you know, telling me is I was not quite satisfied because I didn't see the impact of the research I was doing. And I wasn't hopeful that it will actually reach real world impact. At some point, I made the decision that if you do really want to see the impact of your research, you are the person, you are essentially the main person responsible for making that happen. So that's the, the trigger that initiated cognitivity. Right. In the academic world, were there any particular frustrations that you had or were there any you know, practices that you thought that could be improved, which would help this funnel of you know, taking ideas from the conceptual level uh, right through to releasing them you know, as commercial technologies? So I think academia in general is wired towards gaining security meaning that you want to achieve job security with your, you know, your tenure track, then you get tenure. First, in the entrepreneurial world, when you start a startup, you are all willing to take risks and you are going towards insecurity, if you like. And it's typically high risk, but also high payoff in various forms. That part is difficult to compensate, but there is a huge gap in terms of the risk that people are willing to take. But there is certainly still room for improvement to make this translation of research to real world impact a reality or make it to happen more often. And one of those is to perhaps link the incentives for reaching tenure or whatever you want to put it reaching academic milestones. If those milestones are linked with real-world impact instead of being linked to just publications, I think then we can see slowly by slowly changes like this will happen. It almost seems you know, intuitive in the sense that one would expect in the world of academia, which you know, is the hub of, of research, uh, that the milestones should be linked to some real-world impact uh, but that doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, any, any particular thoughts on that for why the reason could be? I would say in some small models, maybe some departments have tried to implement this. I would say MIT Media Lab is perhaps an example of that. They have tried to have a simple model or a small one that links academic achievements with some level of real-world impact. We have to rethink this through and see if we can replicate that model effectively in other places as well. Also, you can see in different ecosystems have different impacts on academia. For example, in uh, Silicon Valley, you can see because of proximity to Stanford, 
many of academics in, in such universities do have that industry arm in mind or do have that real world impact in mind because they are exposed to it. I think that part of the role of ecosystem. And so actually, if, for example, say if we take the UK, then helping build a stronger ecosystem, a stronger industrial arm uh, in the technology space, that would actually have positive ripple effects onto academia and actually create a stronger symbiotic relationship between the two. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. That's one of the, I think, first steps we should take. In addition, or in parallel with that, we have to work on linking milestones with, with, with real-world impact as well. Earlier, you expressed your frustration with the academic uh, peer review process. Uh, could you speak a bit further about that? So uh, there has been some improvement in the past few years, I would say, such as uh, well, there are significant biases in the peer review process. In most of the journals, still, you don't know who is reviewing your paper. And in some journals, even the reviewer also doesn't know who has written the paper. And this lack of transparency can lead to very ineffective outcomes, I would say. So that lack of transparency is part of the, the reason I would. But in addition to that lack of transparency, the reviewers are not properly incentivized to provide fair, quick, and effective feedback. In the current form of peer review process, let's say I am a reviewer, you send your paper to a journal and they have picked me as a reviewer. Mm -hmm. uh, they email me saying that, dear blah, blah, <laughs> yep. we want you, we've identified your, your expertise matches this paper, we want you to review this. And you have two weeks to review. Well, I have lots of things on my plate. Yep. This doesn't get any priority. <laughs> and if it is a good journal, then I might be willing just to taste it. Uh, like if it comes, if the invitation is from Nature or one of the journals related to that, then I would be intrigued maybe to look at the paper. But still, I am not incentivized properly because I have lots of other things to do for which I'm paid, for this one, I receive no payments right. and no appreciation because my name wouldn't be revealed. Mm -hmm. Well, the authors will receive the appreciation, but the feedback the reviewer has provided to improve the paper doesn't receive any appreciation. So under this lack of transparency, I think the reviewers who actually have some level of competition with the authors, they are incentivized to accept the review. Right, because at least they can delay the the publication of that one. So this is this is I'm playing devil advocate here. Yeah, but realistically, that's you know if you look at the the way the incentives work, this is what you end up reaching to with the current uh, system and how it is set up. It's very disappointing. You know, some academic disciplines are better than others. So I think when we've spoken about this in the past, you know, we've taken perhaps the field of computer science and compared that with the, the biological sciences and where perhaps the field of computer science does better than biological sciences for which uh, there could be certain reasons. You know, one of them is that the computer science field has a quicker feedback loop. Uh, you're able to see more clearly certain things which are working and certain things which are not working and then you can adjust and adapt accordingly. This tends to be more difficult in the biological sciences because of usually the time frame that's involved. 
do you have any thoughts on how you could try and get the field of biological sciences to emulate the way computer science works, whilst obviously acknowledging that there are certain things about biological sciences that cannot be changed, such as the time horizon? The rising of the preprints, so the archive, I think, was the first one. Right. We mostly published computer science work that has given the computer science community a good leverage. And within that community, they have accepted that I don't necessarily have to see a paper published in a particular peer-reviewed journal to kind of accept that paper or take advantage of it or apply it in my in my real world. They have the means because the code is available, the data set is available. They have the means to test the ideas mentioned in that paper for themselves. And you can see some of the very influential work in the recent advances in the AI and deep learning actually were published in, in such high impact journals. And they are highly cited, however. So that's kind of the culture that has uh, gradually evolved in computer science. If we want to try to emulate that within the biological sciences, there has been some good work such as bioarchive, uh, which is kind of trying to simulate the same archiving idea. I would say one potential technique that would allow testing this in the biological world, which is more difficult because it is, you know, it is different by nature. You don't have code or data to be able to go and test it for yourself. You mm -hmm. have to r repeat the, the same experiments that are typically costly and very time consuming to see if you can actually replicate it. But one way to, to kind of accelerate this is post-publication peer review, meaning that you would post your paper on one of these preprint journals or right. something that is specifically developed for this purpose. And then you invite the reviewers to come and comment on your paper in the public. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I think the, the incentive kind of part of it is still missing because you have to find out how to incentivize some reviewers to come and comment on your paper publicly and give feedback. Yeah, it's the first step. If you figure this out, that would be a great move, I, I would say. Right. How has the fundraising process been? Again, earlier you referred to that you know, VC funding was one means of raising capital, but there are others. So what's your journey been like in that sphere? Right. We have actually had, I think, all different types of fundings by now, <laughs> from private investment grants, money, to finding the IPO as well. Each of them serve different purposes for, for the stage the company is in. and. I would say for healthcare companies, because healthcare is typically, it requires a long-term investment, uh, both from the, the founders and the funders. They both have to be committed because typically things in healthcare, given that it is a regulated area, takes quite long to roll out and are more fundamental compared to social media or startups related to that. that mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it, it, you can roll it out much easier and faster and you can get return on your investment faster. But uh, for things like healthcare, you need committed investors who understand the, the area and are willing to wait longer, but have a larger impact and perhaps also receive a larger return, but slightly later. 
you know, one of the things that we spoke about earlier was that actually getting grant funding can help in getting VC investment and that the two aren't necessarily at loggerheads, but they can complement one another. Um, yeah, because grant funding essentially works as a stamp of approval, if you like. So the investors can see that your idea and, and your work has been granted money from grant agencies who have comprehensively reviewed your proposal. That essentially works as a green light to the investors and can attract their trust. Plus that grant monies are typically non-dilutive. And essentially it sort of uh, gives greater credibility and it, it gives a sense of validation. When you're going to investors, how easy or difficult is it trying to articulate what you're trying to do? Because obviously there is a, a large scientific component about this. It touches on AI element as well as the, the digital health aspect. I think from the investor's perspective, you have to convince them that you've got a great team that can actually implement all these ideas. And you've got evidence of this working out to some extent. Uh, so they, they essentially can see the future and see how you can actually implement what you're promising and whether there will be actual users of what you're proposing. Were there particular tips or tricks or perhaps best practices that you use uh, which you felt increased your chances of getting investors on board? So it is, it is a gradual process and you go through different rounds of investment. The initial ones are more difficult to get, but when you get the initial ones, it kind of paves the way for the future rounds of investment because you have been able to reduce the risk, ideally, and to show that you can give return on the money. In terms of the tips for your relationship with, with investors, I would say to the entrepreneurs that uh, always have in mind that this is not a transactional relationship. You are going, you know, you are in this together. It's a journey. And as soon as you accept investment, the investors are added as part of essentially your, your team, if you like, and you, you are in a relationship with them. You have to make sure you don't overpromise and underdeliver, but instead maybe underpromise and overdeliver. So when you, you go to them for the next rounds of funding, they can trust you. So you have done what you said you do. Right. And is there a particular criteria that you use um, in selecting which investors to work with? Right. So ideally, you want to use investors that in addition to the cash, they can also bring in a smart money within their network, for example. So if you're in healthcare, um, ideally, you, want, you, you would like to have investors that have experience in healthcare. They have experience, for example, with, with regulatory bodies. And they have experience that can help you get your product on the market. That's if, if you have several choices, certainly look at those and then uh, give them different, give the investors with smart money and relevant network a higher priority. Is there a neglected topic or area in you know, the realm of health tech, which you think that no one's looking at, but deserves more attention? Right. We touched upon this perhaps briefly. I would say the impact of non-pharmaceutical interventions and lifestyle choices 
cognitive performance and reducing the risk of dementia is not given the the attention that it deserves and it it partly also is because we get into our daily lives and we forget about it because we just look at the the moment and we don't have any measures of kind of performance as opposed for example to your weight if you know you have a scale if you go on a scale on a daily basis then you get obsessed with your weight right so and then you try to take actions that will keep keep you fit yeah uh, or keep your weight within a particular range that is healthy for you mm-hmm. similarly if you provide people with a skill for their brain for the kind of performance then you know they can use that measurement and that tool to start looking at this more seriously on a daily basis and that's essentially what we are trying to do with with the optimine platform i mentioned before so we try to give them a way to measure their kind of performance on a daily basis that's kind of the scale if you like is there a view that you hold in this space which most people would disagree with you on but you strongly think that you're right about back in i don't know 7 or 8 years ago the idea of early diagnosis was not well received and i still vividly remember when we were giving pitches to to investors one of the questions that would certainly come up <laughs> was that uh if if you diagnose someone with early signs of alzheimers what are you going to do about it Mm-hmm. is it ethical well it is fair to ask that question but as i mentioned before these things go hand in hand if you do not have a diagnosis you you can't really develop effective treatments but that was one of the questions we were facing quite often we laid out the benefits of early diagnosis and this has thankfully changed in the past few years and there are many advocates for early diagnosis the even the economic benefits of early diagnosis and the fact that you can actually even in the lack of disease modifying therapies you can delay the onset of disease and that can save uh, trillions of of dollars to the healthcare system the benefits of early diagnosis are are now i think much better appreciated now compared to to 7 years ago and that was this week's episode some technologies have the potential to transform millions of lives and say it is working on one such ambition if you enjoyed the episode or even if you didn't please let us know by leaving a comment or any feedback in either the instagram or linkedin posts and to catch all future episodes head over to spotify or apple podcasts click subscribe and if you could leave a rating that would be great this is the stars and bacteria podcast i'm jas thank you for listening till next time